It's a very strange uh, soundtrack in this room coming down from the very back down here. All I heard was, oh, ah, oh. Yep. Hey, oh, sweetheart, thank you. Oh. Yay. Ava, you're the best. That's my daughter. Hey, so uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Shock, surprise. Tonight and tomorrow, we're going to talk about how the race requires to give us or to give up stuff in this world. We're going to look at the stories of Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, and Moses. Tonight, we're going to uh, read from Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham. There's a song about that. Yeah. Let's read this together. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age that she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, and as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the grains of sand by the seashore. Now these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it was, they desire, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be present with us again tonight? We cannot hope to understand your word, much less have it impact and break open and reform and shape our hearts if you are not with us. We ask for your help. We ask uh, for your conviction. We ask for your courage. We ask for your mercy, for your redemption, your salvation. Would you be present with us, dear Savior? Amen. I'm going to tell you the story of a guy named Kyle uh, Reisnan, who you've never heard of in your entire life. That's because he doesn't play football. He's a U.S. professional cyclist, okay? Here's one way I'm going to bless you this week. I'm going to let you in on a whole other world of athletic competition. That doesn't involve the NBA, NFL, or anything with three acronyms, okay? It's called cycling. Anyway, Kyle Reisnan, 
Just a few weeks ago, won a huge race in the U.S. You've never heard of it either. It doesn't matter. It's called the Parks Casino Philly Cycling Classic. It's in Philadelphia. Yeah, unless you're maybe you're from Philly. You'll love that race. One time at that race. He won it after years of trial and hardship. Here's his story. Kyle Reisenden. This is written by a journalist uh, from the USA Cycling Headquarters. Many people watch professional athletes and think about how gifted they are or how much easier it must have been for them to climb the ranks of their sport. While it's true that successful athletes may, although not always, possess some sort of superior genetic ability, they must also have the mental strength to persevere through hardships and struggle. No one makes it to the top without overcoming obstacles that would push most people to quit. And it's that mental determination and the ability to endure that makes the difference between success and failure. You'll have a lot more bad days than good days. was a phrase I heard frequently throughout my own pro cycling career. And guess what? It was true. When we see someone in the top step of a podium, rarely do we know how many times he didn't finish in the top three or top 25 or even finish at all. Kyle Reisen grew up on a small island near Seattle, Washington, Bainbridge, in case you're wondering. And was hooked, right, this is why I like the guy, Bainbridge, Colorado, it's just, anyway. Uh, and he was hooked on cycling by his high school graduation. His choice to attend the University of Colorado at Boulder was largely motivated by the fact that Boulder is a mecca for American pro cycling. And he flew below the radar for a while until he was finally picked up by the USA National Development Program and spent a summer racing in Belgium. Racing in Belgium is like playing football in Alabama. Okay, it's the big time. I'm just trying to speak your language. I'm going to refrain from homeschooling jokes at that moment. In 2008, in 2008, he was picked up by Jelly Belly, and after being thrown in the deep end, I apparently proved I could swim, Kyle says. He landed his first pro contract. Yay for Kyle. In 2010, after some impressive results and victories, Reisenden signed with Team Type 1 and began his first season racing in Europe as a professional racing in Europe. Again, it's like playing football in the South. It's where the big boys come out to play. In, in Kyle's words, that was, I don't know, that just happened, that was weird. In, in Kyle's words, to say it was hard would be an understatement. It was eye-opening. I had my you-know-what handed to me. That's actually what he said. I didn't Christianize that for you. I had my you-know-what handed to me repeatedly and questioned many times if I was doing the right thing with my life. But slowly, steadily, I made progress. Then... He contracted what he calls a mystery virus in 2010 that almost ended his career. It took me months to recover, he says, and I was unsure if I'd ever race the same level again. Reisner dug in and stuck it out, but it took him two years to fully recover. But Reisner finally proved himself in May, that's this May, though not without another hitch along the way. During the USA Cycling Professional Road National Championships, kind of a big deal, y'all, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the week before, the 2013 Casino Philly Cycling Classic, which he won. Reisenden was gunning for the win at Nationals. He says, after missing out on the Amgen Tour of California, I was hungry, hungry to prove myself. I set my sights on Nationals. I wasn't there, and I wasn't going to let go. Every time I went out training, it was for a purpose. I'm going to win Nationals. I'm going to train harder than anyone else. He says, during those three weeks, I did all the small things right because I knew that I had a real chance of winning. I did an extra 30 minutes at the end of each ride, one extra interval every time reminding myself that I was, it was going to make the difference 
between me and everyone else when it came to race day. The work paid off. Ryzen was in the top three in the final lap of the race, but with 600 meters to go, he dropped his chain. Everybody who's ridden a bike said that happened. Horrible. Though he quickly recovered and still came in third within a bike throw of the victory, his disappointment was evident. When I went to Chattanooga, he said, I went there to win. But I didn't win. I was so emotionally wrapped up in everything, I hadn't given myself the chance to even think about what would happen if I didn't win. So what would you do? The journalist writes, As athletes, we can train and prepare diligently and follow our plan to a T. But sooner or later, we all learn that some things are just outside of our control. The difference between success and failure is how you react to setbacks. Most people in Ryzen's shoes in 2010, living abroad, sick, weak, would have thrown in the towel. He went from a promising young talent to, to being the back of the pack. As spectators, we see the glamorous side of pro cycling or any pro athlete. You know, the racing, the podiums, the travel, the life of luxury, the money, the training full time. We don't see the sacrifice the loneliness of living in a foreign country, the bad or bare-bones hotels, the injuries, the sickness, the pressure to perform, or most importantly, the perseverance it took to get to the place that we see them now. After Philly, we saw many photos of Ryzen's winning move, his explosive attack on this part of the course called the Maniunk Wall. And then he and his teammates celebrated his victory, but there were no photographers around in 2010, taking pictures of him getting his you-know-what handed to him in a race after race after race. Struggling with a virus they couldn't, they couldn't kill and couldn't pin down. Struggling with the question of whether or not he was even cut out for the career that he'd chosen. The photographers at Nationals captured him banging his handlebars in frustration at his bad luck at the end. However, Reisner knew that if he could look ahead and stick it out, there would be a better day. The beautiful thing about cycling is there's always another race the next weekend, the Ryzen says. Since Philly was around the corner from Nationals, I knew I had to stop dwelling on what I couldn't change and start focusing on what I could do the following week at Philly. I knew the course by heart, each meter of that Maniunk wall. The physical form I had worked so hard for was still there, and I knew that the new course suited me well. Even after all the disappointments at Nationals, the team stood behind me. They had confidence in my ability to ride with the best and to finish, and they made sure I was in position to make that happen. The lesson here, the writer writes, is that perseverance may in fact be the most important aspect of an athlete's strengths. What is perseverance? It is the ability to endure. Cycling, triathlon, and running are all endurance sports, and a definition of endurance is bearing hardship and having staying power. Perhaps Ryzen's story may help you get through the next time you may be having a bad day, whether it's a tough training day, or you want to call, call it quits, turn around after 20 minutes, or after a disappointing result at a race where you're targeting all season. Setbacks will happen no matter how much you prepare. But your success as an athlete will be determined by how quickly you can bounce back, how much staying power you have. It's a different kind of power than we usually write about, but perhaps it is the most important power after all. It's obvious why I chose that story, right? 
There's a difference, of course, we're talking about running the Christian race, right? We're not trying to be on the podium of Christianity, right? So everybody can worship us and we get our picture taken at the finish line. But our goal is to reach the end of the race. What I want us to talk about tonight is that perseverance in the race requires a faith that looks beyond my current circumstances. Because the truth about life, your life, just like Kyle's and everybody's life, is that it's full of obstacles, hardships, sorrow, pain, loss, regret. If that's all you saw in life, you'd be miserable. You might even lose faith. I don't know of anybody that I have ever talked to who has left the Christian faith who does not have a story of pain or loss or hardship or an obstacle they could not overcome that caused them to leave. If we're to persevere, we need a vision beyond what we can actually see with our eyes. We need to have the invisible promises of God as our singular focus. Persevering faith holds on to, grabs on to things that we cannot see. To have persevering faith means to hold on to something that you cannot see. And that's the story of Abraham and Sarah. And through their story we have this amazing opportunity to see how the invisible becomes visible by faith. Verses 8 to 10 are about having faith when everything in your life changes. You can't imagine your life being turned more upside down than what happened to Abraham and Sarah. And you know the story. I'm not going to go into it, right? They were called to leave everything, home, family, city, comfort, their money, their house, their hobbies, everything that they knew. And the writer of Hebrews summarized Abraham's story in this phrase in this text. He went out not knowing where he was going. What? <laughs> Have you ever done that in your life? Okay, maybe the hike today, right? You went, you didn't know, really know where you were going. But you knew you were coming home, okay? Some of you thought you might be coming home on a stretcher. You weren't sure. Some injuries out there, right? I know, but you, but you know you were coming home. Abraham and Sarah and their whole family left having no idea where they were going. Most people in the world call that insanity. They were called to leave behind everything. You are freaking out this week because you can't get reception on your me phone. Okay? Imagine leaving everything. Like we, this isn't even in our, we can't even, we can't even handle this. But it gets crazier. The text says Abraham was promised a land as an inheritance. What's an inheritance? An inheritance is something that you wait a really long time for and that you don't get forever. Now, unlike the prodigal son, which is typically what we think about inheritance, if you know, in the Bible, who like cast out his inheritance, right, and got it, and he like ran off it. An inheritance for Abraham in his physical historical life on earth, he never got it. 
The inheritance, as the text says, was something that kept passed on for three generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. As a, none of them got it either. Abraham was a nomad in the middle of the desert, wandering away from everything that he knew and was comfortable with, had everything taken away. And Abraham acted in faith his entire life, despite the fact he never received the promised land. I don't know if you knew that or not. I think maybe we assume in these things, Abraham and the promised land, it's all linked together. Genesis 12, 7. This is why we need to study these familiar stories over and over again. It's in the details. Listen to this. Genesis 12, 7 says, here's the actual promise to Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham built there an altar to God and who appeared to him. Now I'm going to ask a simple question for the public schoolers in here. Now, who exactly did God promise to give the land? So what did Abraham get? He got a promise and a kid. He got a promise. He didn't even get the land. We assume Abraham got the land, and that's why it's easy to act in faith when God gives you, like, here's, like, the promised land. Here's paradise. Here's, the, here's you know, here's Horn Creek and, and, and the Wet Valley and the, and the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Here I have this. No, he never got it. Now, what did Abraham do? Genesis 12, 7 again. The Lord appears to Abraham. He said, to your offspring I'll give this land. Abraham's like, dang. <laughs> I want the land. Then what does he do? So Abraham built there an altar to the Lord. Abraham's response was worship. Mind blown. Abraham worshipped God because of a promise. Abraham worshipped God who wrested control of his life. I have some bad news for you. You are not in control of your life. If you're a Christian, you're not in control of your life. If you're not a Christian, you're still in control of your life. You just don't know it yet. If you're a Christian, you are not in control of your life. What's your response to that? Do you, does it drive you to your knees to your worship? Does it, does it, do you want to look more deeply at Jesus so that you might live in this life in which you're out of control? But what has God promised you? He hasn't promised you control. He has promised you so much in Jesus. He has promised you to justify you forever. He has promised you to make you his beloved son and daughter. He has promised you his Holy Spirit in you. Spiritual union with the triune God in perfect love and harmony and fellowship. God has promised even some material things to give you clothing and housing. Not much beyond that, but he did promise that. He promises an inheritance, an, an eternal inheritance. He promises us himself. 
He says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. He says, you can't get away from me in the heights, the depths, anywhere you go. He's given us all of himself. He has promised us so much, but he has not promised you an easy life. He has not promised you a life of ease. He just hasn't. Some of you will be rich. Some of you will be poor. Some of you will never be sick in, sick in a, day, a day in your life. And some of you will have health problems constantly. Some of you will have marriages that just never have any problems. Some of you have marriages that, like a couple of my friends, are like, man, we probably shouldn't have gotten married. Some of you will have, will, will, you know, will, will lose children at a young age. Some of you won't. Some of you will have great jobs. Some of you have horrible jobs. Some of you will have financial stability for the rest of your life. You won't even know what it means to be in want. And some of you will never know when your next paycheck is going to come. Some of you will be brilliant at relationships and feel like you always have friends. Some of you will be like if you're in your mid-30s and you're like, I still don't know if I have good friends. God has not promised us ease. But he's promised us so much of himself. We can be frustrated and disillusioned at God because we tend to link our circumstances, the stuff we see around us, right? What I have, what I don't have, whether or not I'm getting from God, what I'm asking from Him. We link our circumstances directly to God's character and God's goodness. This is a mistake. This causes us problems. If Abraham and Sarah did that, they never would have been able to put one foot in front of the other. There's no way. Because their story gets even weirder after this. We're only just getting started. You pray for things you don't get, and after a while, a short while, you give up praying. You want someone to like you so bad, and they just don't even know you exist. Story of my life. And, <laughs> and you become depressed, deeply depressed. And darkness comes over you. You don't get the grades you want, and you immediately think you're a loser. Our problem is that we judge ourselves and God by our material circumstances way too much. So we need something else. We need something more powerful if we're to persevere. We need the faith to look ahead no matter what. And Sarah had a no matter what scenario. Let's just be clear about this whole Isaac promise thing. What does Hebrews say? I mean, you know this, but it was medically impossible for Sarah to conceive. Why? Because there were no more eggs in her body. And why? Because her husband was as good as dead. <laughs> it's like, how would you like, old man, you're as good as dead. You know, like, oh my gosh, how horrible is that? The Bible said Abraham, I mean, that's just brutal. Anyway, not only that, do you know how long Abraham and Sarah had to wait for the child to be born? After God promised, okay, Abraham and Sarah were 75, or I don't know how old Sarah was, but Abraham was 75 years old when they left the, the Ur of the Chaldeans in the breadbasket of the universe, Mesopotamia. It's, it's, like living in, it's like living in the OC. You know, I mean, just like everything's there. It's like living, no, it's like living you know, near Hollywood and, and, and all that stuff. Anyway, they left that, I know, that's why California's like Hollywood. <laughs> they left it all. They left it all when they were 75. 
And they'd been married for, I don't know, let's say they got married in their mid-30s, for 40 years, and everybody knew Sarah was barren. Genesis 11 says Sarah was barren, no children. They'd been married for 40-some years, let's just say. Say they got married in their 35. 40 years, no kids, not a surprise. They'd already been waiting that long, no kids. God comes along in their 75 and says, I'm going to give you a child. Do you know how long they waited after that? 25 years. You've not been alive that long. You're still waiting. <laughs> Wait for it. Wait for it. We're talking about waiting for a promise that God said, I will do this. 25 years. You've been waiting for like a year for God to answer one of your prayers, and God hasn't even in a vision promised it to you. And we're frustrated. 25 years for an actual promise from a vision from God. Sarah believed the impossible. Now let's be clear about exactly how she believed the impossible because, well, it's impossible. The word order in verse 11 is very strange and very important. Sarah received the promise, that is Isaac, because or since she believed God faithful. The reason, I mean, the, I mean, the place the power came from was Sarah's belief in God. That sounds sort of weird. Wait, I could conceive, and then the, then the, then the, then the sperm and the egg and the thing don't even exist, and from faith, what? I don't know how it worked. All I'm telling you is, the power came because she believed God faithful. The power was not in herself. The power was not in how powerful her faith, faith was because as you know, she nearly laughed like Jesus pre-incarnate out of the tent, okay? Like she was so cynical, she laughed it off at least once. But she did believe in the end and that's the only reason. Usually I think I get stuff because I work for it, right? God's promises become real in my life simply when I believe them. Persevering faith makes God's promises come alive to me because of the power of the one who is faithful. Because of God. If Abraham and Sarah were to merely look at their circumstances, they would have given up. Humanly speaking, their situation was extraordinarily hard to bear. They were ripped from everything they had to live in foreign lands, you know, in tents. They were, they, th their story before all that was like they were living a super posh life in a New York high-rise apartment. They had, some, they had a summer home in the Hamptons. And then for the rest of their lives, they camped in the desert. Great. How could we bear that? Not only that, they didn't get what they were promised. Sarah received one son, right? Not descendants as numerous as the stars. And verse 13 of Hebrews 11 says, they both died without having received what was promised. That's harsh, y'all. Like, let's just, let's just call it like it is. That's harsh. That's hard to hear. That sounds, at the moment, like something you don't want. 
So what then exactly were Abraham and Sarah looking at that kept them going? The text tells us they were looking forward to a city. Some wonderful irony here because they just left a city, an earthly city, uh, the nicest earthly city up to human history at that point. And they left it. They wanted a different city. How is the city described? Verse 10 says it has a foundation. I'm living in tents. I'm a nomad. I feel like I'm being bounced around. I feel like I don't have my life in order. I feel like I'm out of control of my life. I feel like I'm a nomad living in tents. God has a city that has a foundation for you. That city is designed by God. You think that God's not hearing your prayers because he's not answering them in the way you want, in the time that you want. But God says, I'm not only hearing you, I am designing a city for you that satisfies all of your hopes and dreams and deepest desires. On purpose, I'm doing that. And it's built by God, by his hands, by his own creative power, the creative power that exploded the, the, uh, the, the uh, nameless, void, chaotic earth into the beauty that we see. That same power is building a city for his beloved people. That's your reward. That's what Christ is doing. Hebrews 12, 22, 24, describe this city. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the saints before us, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. To say that Jesus has won this race means that as he set his sights on the cross, he knew that part of his joy, as Hebrews 2 says, 12-2, was going to be building that city for you. What's beyond that finish line is not just the warm arms of Jesus and the, and, the, and the praise of the saints and all the things we've been talking about in the inheritance. It is a city crafted by Jesus himself, with Jesus himself as the center. Abraham and Sarah saw the glories of living with their God as more desirable than their circumstances. Verse 16 says, this is, this is strange, y'all, because if you think about this in a historical context, if you take serious the fact that verse 13 says they died without getting this, verse 16 says they desired this city. They desired something they couldn't see. They desired something completely invisible. They desired something that was only promised to them with little down payments. One son, Isaac, a view of the land, small down payments on the inheritance. They desired this city more than anything else. That's persevering faith. That's holding on to something that I can't see. You hike 16, 14, whatever miles to a lake, 100 miles to the top of the peak. Okay, it wasn't, but it felt like. Uh, you know, you floated however long down the, down the river all day. Um, you, were not, you could not see where you were going. You were only promised something at the end, and was it worth it? Yeah. 
Okay, thank you. Let's just pray and let's stand here. You can see the point, right? When you get to something you desire, it's worth it. The last thing we see in this text is that faith that perseveres is faith in God's promise alone. Seems like an obvious point at the beginning, but it is so not. Not when you're Abraham walking up Mount Moriah on that hot, dusty, devastating day. You thought Abraham and Sarah's life was a bummer up until now. You haven't even heard the worst part. You've heard it before. Let's read it again. God tested Abraham's faith. He said, go burn your only hope and the only down payment of all of this is you can physically touch and see with your hands, Isaac, go burn him on the mountain. Here's what Genesis 22 says. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, his servants, and his son Isaac, so four of them. Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place that God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, and I need you to listen extremely carefully, stay here with the donkey, Abraham says to his young men, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. This is Abraham's son. This is Isaac speaking. Uh, Dad, um, we've got the fire. We've got the wood. I'm 16, remember? And like, I know more than you or whatever. So where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Getting, you're losing it in your old age, Pa. <laughs> Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went together. Abraham, though having no reasonable, rational, that is scientific, cynical reason to think that he was ever coming down with his son, said before he even started walking to his servants, I am bringing my son back to you. Incredible faith. And then he says to his son, they're going up the mountain. They're almost there. In the middle of the desert where animals don't live. He says to his son, Abraham knows what's going on. God will provide for himself the lamb. Hebrews says, at that moment, we don't really know what, you know, Abraham really believed. I don't know. It doesn't say we don't have his, you know, psychic profile in here, his inner thoughts. He either believed that God would provide a literal lamb, which he did, or that even if he had to kill his son, God would raise him back from the dead. Abraham, Abraham's faith is remarkable for this one reason. Abraham was so sure 
That is, he had the confidence and the conviction, which is faith. He had confidence and conviction. He had faith that God would keep his promise. So sure was he that he was willing to give God back the one thing that he held the most dear because he knew, and knew that God would provide for him anyway. He was convinced to his core that God would keep his promise, his literal promise of a zillion descendants no matter what happened on Mount Moriah. No matter what, in other words, the circumstances that he saw in front of him looked like. Circumstances are difficult because they seem to threaten, to harm, to take away what we hold most dear, what's most important to us. What is most important to you? I don't know what it is, but I think the Lord's been working on you in that area this week already. I'll let you discover what that is. I'll let you talk about that tonight in your small groups. You may be in despair in your Christian life because God seems to be testing you with the one thing that is most important to you. He might be asking you to be patient for years in answer to your prayers. You have to know that that is perfectly normal for the Christian life. It's par for the course. Welcome to the club. God's done this several times in my own life. One time I just, I mean, I could tell a zillion stories. I'm actually going to tell some more tomorrow. So, one will do for now, but um, I was thinking about this because John and I were talking last night about some of our stories getting to where we are now, but <clears throat> I had a different vision for my life than doing, you know, ministry and like, being poor and miserable and being under spiritual attack all the time. Um, I was, uh, yeah, and, but I am ordained. That's true. That's a plus. Actually, it was horrible getting to that point, so that's another story. Uh, I got a degree in college in finance. You get that kind of degree to make money, okay? And so you can buy one of those houses, right, down the, that are for sale down the street here past the camp. That could have been me. That's what I wanted. I wanted weekends off. I wanted airline miles from swiping the, the, the company credit card so I could fly my family to Italy for two weeks for our yearly vacation. I was pretty good at finance. I liked it. That's what I wanted to do. At some point, though, God just started gnawing. He started calling me the ministry, and, uh, and I knew I was supposed to go, and I did not want to go. But I'm the kind of person, uh, because... I was a fundamentalist Christian for a while and went to a private school that I'll just do it and be miserable. That's the problem with private school people. And they also think that somebody's, they, and I'll, they think that someone's always looking at them because like the principal and the teachers are like God figures and the English teacher and they have no idea what to do with it. They're completely confused. Anyway, I did not want to go. I went, I was miserable for the first two years of my seminary life. I wanted to do anything but study the Bible. I was angry at God. I was angry at the whole situation. I, did, I, I, I got jobs that were in finance. You know, I just did everything to run from God. I was miserable, and, and it was horrible. I hated St. Louis. I hated my life. I hated people from the South because I couldn't understand them. You know, just kidding. It's not true. I hated, f yeah, no, anyway. Football. I was a mess. I kept fighting God. 
And there was a moment, a precise moment in my life, in the uh, fall of my second year of seminary, where I came out of preaching class at the chapel, and you covenantary seminarians will know what I'm talking about. And I took a right-hand turn on the chapel in the seminary after preaching a wretched sermon once again and being miserable and hating it and God telling me, you can't preach, you don't know me. Oh, he just beat me up so bad. I came, but I came out of that class, took a right to where the grass kind of meets the ivy right off the little porch there. And I just sat down, I just opened my hands up, and I said, God, you take my life, you're in control now, I'm done fighting. It was a fantastic moment. It was a moment where I gave up control of my life. It was a moment where I began to run the race that God had for me. And he has done so much more in my life. He's never let me down. He's become more and more beautiful to me. It's what he does Faith that sees promises as real means I give up my life to God so that I can make room for the city of God. I don't know what God will test you with. I don't. But I do know this. What he tests you with will be extremely important to you. But what you give up you will receive back from him 100 times more and it will last for all eternity. Remember what Kyle Ryzen said when he, what kept him going when circumstances seemed to be nothing but despair? He says, I knew that if I could look ahead and stick it out, there would be a better day. We have something so much more than finally winning a race or a better day. We have the city at whose center is Jesus. Hear about the city from Revelation 21. It says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, the north, three gates, the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. There was jasper, there was sapphire, there was agate, there was emerald, there was onyx, there was carnelian, there was chrysolite, there was beryl, there was topaz, there was chrysoprase, there was jacinth, there was, there was amethyst. More jewels than you even know what they are. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold and transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gave it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there, no alleyways, no unsafe places, no one to harm you. Then we will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you have that city as your focus? Let's pray. Jesus, would you please give us the strength and the faith? to hold on to something that we can't see. It it sounds so glorious, so beautiful. Just the beauty and the radiance and the light alone, but knowing that not only that, that we'll be caught up in your glory and your radiance and you will be there and you will overwhelm us in your beauty and your love and your glory and all the, the desires of our hearts will be met in you. Jesus, give us a faith that holds on to that. Give us the eyes to see what you have promised and not yet given to us. Jesus, give us this grace, we pray. Amen.